Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our Editor-at-Large. And we have plenty to talk about this week, but before we get into some of the new news, we have to close a chapter on one story we've been talking about for a while, which is Ready Player One. So Ready Player One first kind of entered the cycle for us when we saw it, well, when I saw it at South by Southwest, and it was sort of unveiled to the world as being, for a lot of people, better than they expected, but also an interesting commercial gamble, this heavily nostalgic film, kind of a high-concept sci-fi movie, even by Spielberg standards, a tricky one to release. And even down to the wire of last week when we were recording, while it was tracking pretty well, it was kind of unclear just you know, whether or not this very heavily CGI, very strange kind of movie about the future of technology and and social interaction and all this kind of stuff, and 80s nostalgia that Spielberg contributed to would actually work commercially. Well, lo and behold, the movie did pretty well. Over $238 million worldwide so far. What do you think, Ann? Did did we lowball Spielberg? What, what, What happened here exactly? It's interesting. There seems to be this kind of assumption that he's lost his cachet, uh, especially with younger audiences. And so people were, were, you know, it's also a very smart movie. It's a little bit like Arrival or or uh, Blade Runner 249, you know, a little bit too smart for the room. Um, but the but the book really was a big bestseller, and young people did read the book, and it did deal with the '80s in a way that seems to have played well. And it's the biggest success he's had since uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Crystal ten years ago. Amazing on a worldwide basis, it's going to make its money back. It's it's the biggest opener he's had in a decade, and um, in many ways, it was you know one of the riskier moves he's made. And and he says it was among the three most difficult movies he ever made. Along with you know saving private ryan and 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 schindler's list so you know he's uh he he pulled it off yeah it's, i think it's it is also very interesting to think about the challenges spielberg faced on something like schindler's list which by the way is about to have this uh big anniversary screening at the tribeca film festival and something along these lines which is speaking to such a different demographic such a different side of this filmmaker and really gets at the essence of, of why he continues to be such a remarkable kind of cultural figure. I mean, into his 70s, he can make movies like this. It's, he's not somebody who is now then going to, you know, going to use the success to jump into making a Marvel movie or something like that. We'll probably get another kind of interesting sort of serious movie and the, that balance is something that literally nobody else can maintain. So I think there is a lot to glean from the success of this movie and the, the fact that, you know, it's not perfect, but it came out as well as it did and will remain probably in the conversation attests to just how much Spielberg remains, I think, sort of a, a leading visionary of what movies are in America. Don't you agree? Yeah, I definitely do. And I also got a kick out of seeing him take all of the sort of false turns from Tintin or uh, from from the BFG, which were not the most successful uh, big um, visual effects movies and use all of that knowledge gained all the way back to 
from from the beginning AI and put it here. And also, we can now talk about the best sequence in the movie, the most exciting thing uh, that Spielberg's done in a long time, which is this shining uh, scene where it's a movie within a movie where they recreate the the actual sets from the Stanley Kubrick movie and the screenwriters were, you know, Ernest Klein and, and Zach Penn were a little trepidatious. They started out wanting it to be Blade Runner, which Warner brothers scotched. And they thought that maybe Spielberg wouldn't want to go there with, you know, the, his mentor, his idol, this revered iconic filmmaker who, who he actually was friends with and honored with AI. And so he, he actually went for it. And it's really gratifying to be in a big theater with an audience watching that scene. Yeah, I mean, the South by premiere, I feel like there was already a lot of love in the room for the movie. You know, the fanboy contingency, Spielberg's there, all that stuff. But when that happened, it was like elation. I mean, I was, my, my jaw was agape. I didn't even know, if, was this working? Was it a bridge too far? But it was just so insane that it was happening you know to think about one of the most iconic filmmakers of all time recreating moments and a whole world from another one i mean it was just it's it's such a high stakes gamble and it with and a I do, skew with it with an interesting skew i mean i think it, i think it works pretty well it's a smart way to take some of the ideas of a novel and put them give them some visual sense you know the idea it had to be something as recognizable as the overlook hotel and it is. It's 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 a world that as soon as you're inside of it, you know you're in that movie. I mean, and you, you go, are you know what's going to happen? And there are the you know there you start to see the things that you want to see. I don't want to spoil it. Well, it's a all. theme park ride, it's right? So it's like fun. a cinema. Yeah. I mean, if you've yeah. seen Room Two Thirty Seven, you know how people love to obsess over the nuances to the <laughs> point of mania over what Kubrick created here. And essentially, that's what makes it work. Is that the template was there. The Overlook was a fictional universe that was so neatly laid out that it was ready-made for someone to take the technology to recreate that world. Now, what I'm bracing for is somebody of lesser talent with similar resources to, to look at this and say, oh, okay, we can do this now and start to recreate all kinds of stuff from other movies. But I guess that's sort of the, the broader fear of virtual reality anyway, is that we start living in worlds that we've already been through but just get refurbished in some flashier technology. So what's really we'll fun here is that they they I, I, they actually they actually take it where you don't know where it's going to go and they use uh, characters of the the high fiver in there you know wandering around trying to figure out how to win a challenge and they they take it on this metaphysical journey this meta journey um, with references and that the characters themselves don't understand right. you know so that that made it fun too now I don't want to overhype the movie it does have its flaws storytelling wise but it is just neat to see that there there is a way to make this kind of material work with a filmmaker who is so uh, committed to getting it right and has the luxury to spend three years or whatever it was hashing it out although I have to say I did like his Tintin too so rather than just saying that was a dry run I think it's kind of neat when he experiments and doesn't totally live up to everybody's standards either so no. Oh, I'm not saying it was a complete failure or anything. It, it, it's not. It's just not one of my favorite, you know, great Spielberg films. Um, and you know, I I still remember one particular shot where he goes under the street. Oh and yeah, it's very cool. It's a, very cool. You know, it, it also it, it captures he, the he's comics. capable of amazing camera. Well, he's also capable he's, of uh, unlike like, a lot of a lot of of filmmakers and taking 
existing material and sort of recognizing its cinematic potential. I mean, the Tintin is such a great encapsulation of the, the kind of mood and the, the energy of the comics in much the same way that Jurassic Park recognizes sort of the, the kind of hard science element of, of the novel in tandem with the voices of the characters and stuff like that. So I, there, there, it's just a, a re really efficient storytelling. But anyway, let's put Ready Player One to bed for now. I'm sure it's going to stay in the conversation for other reasons, special effects, award season, all that kind Maybe of stuff. Maybe best and director, or, you know, know, depending Anything on how possible. things end up. But, but there's just so much around the corner, starting with the Cannes Film Festival. Now, we've been sort of anticipating Cannes stuff for a really long time. Now, more than ever, news starts to leak out a lot earlier than when necessarily when people wanted to. And so in this particular case, we, we started to get some news about some films that we know for certain are screening at Cannes, starting with the opening night film. Now that is Everybody Knows, which is the first Spanish-language feature from the Iranian director Asghar Farhadi. Terrific filmmaker, two-time Oscar winner. Uh, this one, I'm, I'm, su I'm super curious about it. I mean, there is this sort of uh, stigma associated with being an opening night film at Cannes, which I think is very misguided because, look, Up opened Cannes. Moonrise Kingdom sometimes. opened Cannes. Sometimes, you never yes, know. sometimes, no. You never know. It's, it's really hard to if read that If it's a French film, of. it's usually bad. That's it, it, how that, it that, is tr that is true. <laughs> if, if French film with Marion Cotillard or somebody like that, I mean, and maybe it's opening <laughs> that week, and also probably the one thing that's available or something else. There's always a story with this stuff. But in this particular case, it's kind of hard to tell because it does have Javier Bardem and uh, and Penelope Cruz, and uh, that's that's just a really powerful combo. And if the movie you know works pretty well and manages to hit the star power element, maybe because it's a thriller and, and not going to be for everyone or something to that effect, it can have more of a profile as an opening night film, and they get the red carpet stuff than it would if it was in competition where it would divide people. I mean, remember, Salesman, even though it went on to win the Oscar, showed very late at Cannes, and uh, was not seen as being on the level of, say, a separation right away. It was not an immediate hit with all critics. So maybe for this kind of a filmmaker, this is the ideal slot. I'm actually really excited about it, aren't you? I'm excited about it, and I'm curious to see how he does in Spanish. Um, that, that's well, an that interesting choice, of course, when, when you move from one language uh, to another. Solo playing at Cannes uh, out of competition is another matter. That has to have raised a lot of eyebrows today with, with the idea that a, that a Marvel, that I mean, excuse me, a Star Wars, Lucasfilm, They Disney all blur together. Movie, the one with all the troubles and the well, people kicked off and the questions about if it's any good or not. I mean, this is one way to set those questions to rest. Well, I guess. let's let's talk this through for a minute because I, I wouldn't I wouldn't jump to conclusions one way or another. I mean, can first of all, can is capable of showing bad movies, including studio movies. They showed a pretty bad Pirates of the Caribbean movie not that long ago. Just they for the showed record. Mad Max. They showed Mad Max was uh, great. That was an opening. That film was a brilliant choice. I mean, I mean, and sometimes, sometimes it works out well. But, but what I would say in this particular context, so this this news broke right before we started recording, just that it that it's got this special slot, and I saw some immediate reactions of sort of the WTF variety. First of all, this is going to be the third Star Wars movie to play at Cannes out of competition: Attack of the Clones and. Um, the third, the episode three, the the final entry in the in the in Lucas's trilogy, both got canned slots. I like episode three, okay, but uh, you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of big fans of Attack of the Clones. All of those were 
under Thierry Frameau's tenure as the artistic director of the festival. So I think there is some reason to be at least a little skeptical about sort of the can endorsement meaning something about the overall quality of this thing. What I think is interesting is that it's Ron Howard, and I wonder if this movie, even if it turned out well, would be going to Cannes if it was the guys who got fired from the movie, because Howard is an American auteur director who can't, he's sort of in the Cannes ranks to some degree. Well, they've played, yeah, guess what they played before? They they played the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was an opening night. I don't think they think of him as a, as a great auteur. No, but uh, they let honestly. him in. They brought him in. I Maybe this, that that yeah. has anything to do with it. Well, if he was an auteur, he'd be in, be in competition. I they mean, like, that, they like established Howard Hollywood. in the auteurist uh, universe. He's a hired hand. They uh, brought him well, in to save their asses. We see it that way. We see it that way, but I do think there's something, he's not on a Spielberg level but he is this is hardly an auteur movie this is one of those great we'll, situations we'll where you know it takes a village to make a a, 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 a presumed uh blockbuster we shall see you're right i, I am we curious about it because it's, be. it's an interesting everything gets analyzed to death these days but especially big franchise movies that take place in worlds with multiple moving storylines require so much scrutiny up front for everyone to kind of figure out what's happening in them. And you know with this particular kind of a movie, that's going to be so hard to process in the chaotic environment of Cannes, not just for you know critics, but just for, for everybody to get a sense for, you know, is the movie actually any good when it's playing up against, you know, an Oscar Farhadi movie or whatever else, or a Nuri Bilga Ceylon film or a Pitch at Pong. Well, they're using it as a marketing launch for Europe. You know, it, it's really not a about, I don't think they care what the critics have to say. But let, there is an interesting list of names that will not, according to Center Europa, have uh, any films ready in time for Cannes. And a lot of people were disappointed that, Xavier Dolan's new movie, Claire Denis, Barry Jenkins, Luca Guadagnino, Naomi Kawasi, Jock Adiard, none of them are going to be ready in well, time. Well, I, I mean, sitting in Europa, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure all of that's necessarily going to be accurate. I mean, things can change so last minute it can. You can have, we know for a fact that some of the films you just listed were submitted. So the question is, is it because a producer feels like there's not enough time or can isn't the right platform? I mean, the way this information travels, it moves in so many different directions and they can literally make decisions after they've announced the lineup. They can add, they added the artist to the competition after the, the lineup had been out there. So stuff can change. And so it, I just I want to exercise caution with that sort of thing because you see so many reports, especially with a European source that's talking to a gazillion different sales agents who know what's going on, but again, I mean, it's sort of like there's so many different ways that somebody can circumnavigate that. So the story will keep developing, and I'm sure that if not, well, the I had next already time, heard that Amazon was going to release um, Suspiria, for example, in the fall. You know, right. That, so can but doesn't I've also make heard sense, that there so. are four Amazon movies in the festival. So what are those four? movies going to to be there's so um, many there's a several possibilities there i mean there's a lot that's in the pipeline we know it's not going to be uh, uh 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 other things that they have in the fall but but there's certainly other other titles well i think one of them yet, so. yeah yeah well we we shall see exactly. um i'm pretty anyway so uh there the the other uh stuff that we have to talk about are some of the new openings yeah so moving moving back to to where we are right now there's a ton of movies opening this week 
that we've both seen. So I think it would be nice to just sort of talk those through for a little bit. First of all, when we were at Telluride last year, there was this film called Lean on Pete from Andrew Hay that premiered, and uh, it's finally coming out through A24. Now, this is a guy who did Looking on HBO, he did Weekend, a uh, really talented filmmaker who, who's got a very textured, kind of nuanced approach to these character-driven stories. What I thought was interesting about Lean on Pete, and, and I know you're somewhat of a bigger fan than I am, but what I thought was really interesting about it is this is a story of this kind of lone kid in the American landscape with a, with a horse who, who kind of escapes from home, is that it just, it looks so different from the settings and the kinds of characters he's represented before. And it really, for me, even though I felt like movie kind of loses its way after a while I did think that it was neat to see this filmmaker kind of stretch his legs a little bit because it, it suggests to me that he's one of those talents where you just never know where he's going to move next and that's, that's what he exciting. does do very consistently and this is why I like the movie so much and as you know sometimes there are movies that have to do with you know uh <laughs> abandoned children, you know, that, that'll, that'll just pull the heartstrings uh, for me. And struggling so this, animals, too. Don't forget about yeah, the struggling animals. Yeah, animals and children, you know, horses. Yeah, there's there's all sorts of material here but that he minds, and, and there's a great performance by by Steve Buscemi, uh, not to mention the kid who's really good. But you go, you go through this movie, and it builds, and it builds, and it takes you from one place to another. It's sort of a road movie, and a drama, and a tale of of survival and loss and and it's tough and then you get to the end and you don't expect that your emotions are just going to go spilling off into into the kinds of depths that it did at least for me and I understand that this works as a tearjerker for other people as well and and I think Hay is particularly adept um, and he has been with every film he's done from Weekend through uh, the, in 45 years. He, he knows how to do that, and that's why he did this movie. And yes, he does a beautiful job with the American landscape. Well, and, in and Charlie yeah. Plummer is a great is a great actor. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. that was my big takeaway from this movie. It was, was just that it's this kid is in like basically every scene, and he's just gripping and so real. And and it's one of those stars born moments. So that's that's a reason to see the movie above all else. I also think it's worth noting. There's another movie coming out in a little bit called The Writer, which I know we've talked about a little bit before because it's been around a bit. It won Cannes last year. It was nominated another for Another horse Award. movie. But yeah, it's, it's another movie that's directed by a non-American about uh, this like very traditional American trope, but in a very non-traditional way with amateur performers and so forth. And I think there's something kind of fascinating about that. I mean, this week I wrote about a movie opening that I like a lot called Sweet Country, which is an Australian outback western. And I think... What's what's in, what's notable is that the the Western trope may seem dated to a lot of people, but it's also something that is so enduring in our culture, or in, and something that is just feels so definitively American that it is still attractive to filmmakers. They're just finding new stories to kind of place within those contexts, and that's kind of neat too. So there is another major movie opening this weekend that has been kind of in the conversation for a lot of reasons for a while, and that's Chappaquiddick, which, you know, there was this big story about Byron Allen's Entertainment Studios spending $20 million on it before Toronto. It wasn't totally accurate in terms of the, the price tag, but... They made it was certainly, a commitment on what they were going to spend. Yeah, exactly. But but I think what's, what's kind of... Um, I finally saw this, man. I know you saw it a while back. I finally caught up with it just the other night, and I think... The movie's decent in terms of looking at what happened to Ted Kennedy on that night. It felt a little bit to me like 
one of those American crime story seasons stuffed into a feature length format. I mean, it's very kind of matter of fact, although there are some kind of engaging moments as this kind of bumbling character is covering up this terrible thing he did under the, you know, auspices of having so much privilege that he knows the whole time he's going to get away with it somehow. And, and lo and behold, he does to become the lion of the Senate for 40 years. But I, I, I'm sort of divided on it because on some level, it was sort of like, I haven't thought once about that movie in the 24 hours since I saw it, and I kind of felt like I'd already seen it by the time I watched it. There's nothing shocking to me about it, and I'm sort of curious what, you know, a kind of newcomer to the distribution scene like Byron Allen saw in this film, taking a big gamble, spending a good amount of money on it, and pushing it out to the extent that he did. I mean, is there a big market for a movie that's, you know, a decent look at, at this tragedy that happened, this car crash? Or you, you tell me. Well, I think the answer to that is is there's probably uh, not. <laughs> I mean, part of okay, uh, I'm, I'm not crazy story <laughs> about this right now. The the pro the people who made the movie are liberal Democrats. You know, Jason Clark, who plays who does a really good job, I think, playing Teddy Kennedy, actually looks like him. Um, and Mary Jo Kopechny is played by by uh, Rooney Mara's sister, Kate Mara. And it's it's very well. I think John Curran and the screenwriters did a really good job with this. And it, they, I learned some things I didn't know about the behind the scenes power mongering uh, that went on to, to get him out of the situation. But um, the politics of it, the partisan politics of it are fascinating. And so the Byron Allen is selling this movie, you know, via Fox News and Super Bowl spots and, and, and you know, going with, with the, 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 the right wing people who want to d denounce Ted Kennedy and a lot of the people like, um, Rachel Maddow and and you know uh, the HBO guy who we all know Bill Maher they didn't want to put him on the show put to put the movie on the show they don't want to dump on Ted Kennedy so there's it's they're having to overcome this kind of weird partisan aspect they went straight down the middle trying to recreate what really happened as best they could but you know there's a big mystery at the center of it that will never be answered there's even a TMZ. Uh, theory out there, which I find absolutely fascinating that what really happened, <laughs> this is total, yeah, I have no idea how, to, how anyone, anyone would ever find out what happened here, but that, that, Ted, that, that, that Mary Jo Kopechny was drunk and couldn't drive and she cr climbed into the back seat of Teddy Kennedy's car and he didn't know she was there. He was with someone else they got drunkenly into the car, drove off the edge of the of the bridge, went down. He saved the person he was with, and didn't know that Mary Jo Kopechny was in the back. Such that fascinates bold. me. Give me a break. You watch the I movie watched, totally. I, mean, I, 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 I guess if maybe I maybe that would have made a better movie. <laughs> I, that's what I was gonna say. If the movie was better, I would be inclined to do a bunch of research on this. But I kind of felt like because it has such a matter of fact kind of quality to it, I just I believed what I was seeing. I mean, it makes. It makes total sense that this guy who, you know, is so determined to do right by his father, especially after his two brothers have died, and, and you know, he, he screwed up, he drank too much, and didn't, didn't report the incident, and then had to dig himself out of a hole, and he had a team of people who help him do that. I mean, we see stuff like that going on on a different scale with uh, well, our current still president. It's still I mean, resonant, absolutely, today. And, and we, we know that, it, that, that there's truth there. The other, the other thing that struck me was that this, this terrible thing that happened to Ted Kennedy helped to turn him into the great 
senator that he became, and he was he was an extraordinarily successful legislator for his, the rest of his life. And uh, and it's a, it's a, that's a he never could run for president, and that was the best thing that ever happened to well, him. Well, he tried and failed once. I mean, that that's sort of the the ultimate gut punch in in the epilogue is to think about it in those terms of sort of like that you know he he already had one sort of accomplishment and he's able to maintain that by by getting through this but maybe he wasn't actually presidential material and the movie leaves you with this perception that you know this guy was first and foremost you know important or influential because of his family and the kind of privilege that came with that allowed him to get around something that for anyone else would have destroyed their career and he should have gone to jail for it. So yes, it's 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 a condemnation, but it it is strange to me to think of that condemnation needing to play to the right wingers or something like that because I think that, you know, especially the guy's not around anymore. We don't need to like valorize him or something like that. But I think it's also it's acceptable to talk about people who have accomplished things in a positive way and also deal with the fact that they they you know made serious mistakes. I mean, we could talk about MLK's and marital infidelities and still talk about MLK being an important figure or something to that effect. And so there 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 is a balancing act here. So I'm sort of curious to see how it does and I'm sure I know it's to... unusual for something like well here's the thing you would ordinarily expect a movie like this to be an art house play something that would open limited that would get some critical praise it got reasonable critical reviews out of Toronto you know like 69 on, on Metacritic so you know they were going to take it out as a, an academy play in the fall which they did not do they went with Hostels instead the Christian Bale Western which did okay at the box office but didn't get any Oscar nominations so I'm you know I, I suspect that we will see that this does, you know, modestly well and moves on to its its uh, other windows. Yeah, no, it, it should be interesting to see as this company continues to try to prove itself exactly how it plays out and how that informs whatever it does next, setting aside the fact that the guy also owns the Weather Channel, which is a whole other conversation <laughs> to be at. So, what the hell? Two more the latter day Barry Diller, yeah, it sure. seems. If he wants it. So, two a more movies. Hodge of acquisitions. Two more movies for us to talk about opening this week, right quick. You were never really here. We touched on way back at Cannes when it was it was the last competition movie to screen. It was, I don't know, a little bit shorter back then. Um, Lynn Ramsey's film with Joaquin Phoenix is this kind of lonely, melancholic hitman. I rewatched the movie at its 95-minute length, which is, I don't know, like seven minutes longer than it was when it was at Cannes. I liked it a little bit more, but it's... It's interesting because I feel like on on the one hand it's her most efficient movie. It's a very it's very concise. It's very it's very involving from an atmospheric standpoint. At the same time, it's her least substantial one in that it it's working through less material. It's more about Phoenix's performance and kind of the idiosyncratic way in which she takes the the crime hitman detective shaggy dog detective story elements and kind of fuses them through her own aesthetic so it's worth seeing if you like what she does but i would not necessarily say it's quite on the same level it's, it's a special movie because she's a special kind of filmmaker but i'm still sort of working through it a little bit how do you feel well about i it? i'm a big fan of joaquin phoenix's performance in the movie and i did talk to him and um learned that he, uh, in his way, is always trying to get away from any kind of expectations or cliches or something that you may have seen before. And he and 
when Ramsey struggled to come up with an end ending that wasn't the standard, you know, uh, white knight goes in to save uh, damsel in distress kind of kind of uh, thing. And they came up with something entirely different um, at the very last minute, two days before uh, they were filming. And as you know, um, the word on the street when we were in Cannes was that she barely finished it uh, mm -hmm. before you could uh, see it. showing it there. And you that's tell. why they needed to go back to the editing room. And they did some reshoots and they did some ADR and, and you know, fixed it up and made it uh, better. But um, his performance is remarkable. And I, uh, you know, he won Best Actor at Cannes and, and I recommend the movie on that basis. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely worth seeing for certain kinds of viewers who, who want to kind of be on the wavelength of a movie like that. Having said this, probably the most roundly satisfying movie opening this week for a broad audience would have to be Blockers. I mean, this is another South by Southwest movie, um, after, in addition to Ready Player One in A Quiet Place. Uh, and I think what's, what's kind of neat about it is that yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a perfect movie, but it really, I mean, it's Kay Kahn's directorial debut, and it's this, like, you know, great premise for a studio kind of comedy. You know, it's a, a bunch of girls who make a pact to lose their virginity on uh, prom night, and because of their text messages showing up on one of their computers, the parents know and try to stop them. That's, it's it's very 21st century, but also, you know, the comedy just kind of works in in a very accessible way. So it's just... You know, it's not. I wouldn't say it's my favorite kind of movie overall, but just in terms of you know the 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 barometer for success of these things, I I found it to be a very satisfying movie. One of, one of the better kinds of super bad type of you know party sex comedies with with teenagers I've seen in a long time. What did you think? You're a mom. It well, <laughs> uh, yeah. It, uh, I can see why it played well at South by. I can also see why if it played that well at South by. It, you know, the, you, you, this is one of those cases where I went in expecting more than I got. Um, and I will say that it requires that a bunch of parents be really dumb. You have to buy into their idiocy in order to oh, they're uh, so stupid, go yeah. along with it. You know, but, they're, 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 know. This, this, they're, you have to buy the premise that they're super protective and they're super um, willing to, to spy on their kids and intrude on their kids. And their kids actually put up with them remarkably. I, <laughs> I was really sort of amazed that the, the skill of, of the performers is undeniable and they do a great job. Uh, I have to say that the thing that lingers in my mind, and I don't know what this reveals about me, is an image of John Senna and his muscular his thighs. <laughs> <laughs> well, John Cena, John, John Cena is, is actually really funny in this movie. That's sort of, the, it's a neat revelation. It's kind of like when you, when you see Channing Tatum in, uh, in uh, 21 Jump Street and you're like, wait a minute, that guy has comic timing. I mean, he's yeah, actually, he's it's, it's that. very effective. He was good in that other yeah. movie, the, 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 the one, the, the Iraqi war one that, that, that he was in. He was good. Yeah, I mean, he's not, he's not a bad actor. People assume that you know, he's a former WWE guy, or kind of still a WWE guy. Maybe he's not as talented or whatever, but, you know, that's acting too. So in any case, next week we'll have a chance to look at how these movies are doing, maybe re-evaluate the Chappaquiddick of it all and see how that played out. You're going to San Francisco, so you're going to do some cool stuff there over the weekend, and uh, we'll have plenty to dig through from all that as we continue to uh, survive the post-Oscar season and gear up for Cannes. So enjoy your see weekend, you next Dan. Week. 
拜拜。Okay, bye bye.